So, we have been talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And let let me just remind you of two really important points when we look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. First of all, this doesn't come out of the blue in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians is about the importance of understanding grace and what happens when you lose um, your orientation um, towards grace. In other words, when you forget that the way you can have a relationship with God and continue to have an open and beautiful relationship with God is because of His grace. As soon as you start to think that it's something you deserve or something that you can make happen or um, make happen better because of your own efforts and because of how great you are, um, it tends to really um, sour that relationship. And it tends to then spill over into all areas of your life. That's That's what the epistle to the Galatians is about. Because the Galatians had had Um, a very good understanding of grace, and it had really animated their lives. It had really filled their hearts, and they were solid and secure in knowing that they could have a relationship with God because God had opened the way. God had rescued them. God had changed them. And then they began to buy into some other teaching by some people that had come in after the Apostle Paul had left, And this other teaching said, no, if you really want to be fired up for God, you really want to show God how sold out for him you are, well, then you need to do things like eat certain foods and get circumcised and and, and really be radical for God. And while at first that might sound awesome, and, you know, if you're at a conference and people talk like that, you're like, yeah, awesome. And then you come back home and you begin to feel like a failure. And it begins to make you miserable. And it begins to affect the way you relate to other people. Maybe you can understand that. A friend of mine who started the RUF down at University of Texas used to say that almost every student I get in RUF is trying to get back to a mountaintop experience they had in junior high camp. Thinking that that's kind of the peak, that that's like the ultimate. Um, Without realizing or even beginning to appreciate that grace looks different in the midst of the struggle. And, and I, I'd so appreciated the songs that we sang tonight because RUF wants to be a place that makes the gospel work in the everyday life, in relationships, in the hard stuff. And as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, what I want you to remember, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, I'll just remind you, but if you haven't been here, I'll tell you. Um, it doesn't say fruits, plural, in in the Greek, which is what your Bibles are translated from the Greek in the New Testament. In the Greek, it's fruit. In the English, it's fruit as well, right? And it's singular, which means this isn't just a list of characteristics. Hopefully, you have some of them. And if you have some of them but not others, that's okay, because you can have some fruit and not others. No, it really is a multifaceted description of Christian character. And if you think you have self-control, but you don't have joy, if you think you have love for God, but you don't have kindness towards other people, you may not actually have the fruit of the Spirit. You may have a counterfeit that looks like the fruit of the Spirit, but it's really coming from your own strength and your own willpower. So that's the first point, that the fruit is either you have all of the fruit, 
in, in some way, or it's maybe not the fruit that you have. The, the second point to make is that the way the fruit grows in your life is by relying upon Christ. And the way that that grows in your life is by understanding and putting your hope regularly in the cross of Christ, regularly being satisfied with what's coming. As a matter of fact, earlier in, in this chapter, Paul talks about eagerly awaiting the hope that we have. And in the Bible, hope is not just wishful thinking. Hope is a secure, solid future. And what Paul says is that we eagerly await this righteousness for which we hope. We, we actually, in right now, think about, dwell upon the beauty that will be ours. Already you're beautiful in God's sight if you're in a relationship with God through Christ. But one day that beauty will be yours. And as we eagerly anticipate that, that, that we, you know, I, I've described it as like when you know that you're, like if I was going on the mission trip to St. Louis, I would be thinking about Lion's Choice, roast beef sandwiches, because I love that place. They don't have them anywhere else. Only in St. Louis, where I lived for three years. And if I start thinking about Lion's Choice, my mouth would start watering. <laughs> have, you, have you ever known? There's places you can think about. Maybe it's your mom's cooking. Maybe it's someplace back home. Maybe it's the calf. I don't know. But when you think about it, your mouth just starts watering. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that when you think about the beauty that's going to be yours, you, you begin to warm to it. And it begins to fill you with a security where you don't need the approval of everybody else. And you can actually focus on other people. That's, that's what the fruit is, is talking about. It comes from reliance upon the gospel. It doesn't just come out of the blue. It doesn't come by your own willpower, right? And as you look at this list, and I'm going to read it here in a second. It's in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. When you look at this list, it can be rather sobering. But here's the thing I want you to remember as we look at this list tonight. This is what God is committed to producing in you if you're in a relationship with him. So I know sometimes it's, it's helpful actually to look at a list of what God says to do or what should be true of you as a foretelling of what will be true of you if you are in a relationship with God. This is what God is committed to making. It's like what I've done a series on the Ten Commandments. Like the Ten Commandments starts out with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. Then God does not proceed to give us ten ways to put us back into bondage. No, he says, here are ten conditions through which beautiful, rich community will happen. If you want to have a beautiful community, it needs to be a place where marriage is honored. It needs to be a place where the truth is honored. It needs to be a place where people's possessions are honored and you actually are content with what God has given you. It needs to be a place where God himself is honored, where, where you rest as God calls you and invites you to rest. There, there are 10 conditions for community, the kind of community that you all long for. And that's what Paul is, is doing the same kind of thing here. He's saying, this is what 
Christian character looks like, and this is what you were made for, to be in relationship with people who exhibit these characteristics, and this is what you are to be like. Uh, the, the Puritans used to talk about, you know, having this, the fragrance of Christ, or the aroma of Christ in how we lived, in how we live, and this is what it looks like. So let me read. It's in verse 22. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. As a matter of fact, these things are in keeping with the law. The Old Testament law was never to be just things that you, you basically give grudging obedience to, and yet your heart is far from God. The fruit of the Spirit are the kinds of things that are produced when your heart is at rest in the gospel, and you don't need to justify yourself. Now, it's a sobering list, but again, it's an encouraging list. Don't you long to be someone like this? You know, it's interesting. Sometimes Christians are seen as people who are not even real. When in fact, what Christ has come to do is to restore his people to true humanity so that we could be back to the task God originally gave to humankind in the garden, which was to take this whole cosmos of God-glorifying potential and, and cultivate it to bring out the God-glorifying potential that he'd built in the whole cosmos. That's why Adam and Eve were put in a garden, but the garden isn't the whole world. The garden is the cultivated part, and there to multiply and to go out and to bring out all the God-glorifying potential. But when sin enters the world, now mankind no longer wants to be in this rich relationship with God, working with him to bring out all the God-glorifying potential that he's built into his world. Now we want to make things for ourselves. And it's all about us, and conflict begins to happen, and even the creation itself is groaning. But what Christ comes to do is not just to save souls so that they can go up and live in a cloud forever. What God is doing in Christ is actually restoring his original purpose. But until we're reconciled to him, we're not going to be reconciled to this purpose, right? But the purpose involves looking, living like this as we go out and take not just the gospel that reconciliation with God is possible through Christ, but that God wants to make all things new and make all things well, right? So it's a sobering list, but it's an encouraging list when you realize this is what God is at work to do. And the fruit is meant to be seen. Fruit is meant to be seen. And it was, you know, there's so many wonderful stories from the early church. Um, do you know this story about the second century Roman emperor Julian? He writes to a pagan priest complaining about how he can't seem to stamp out Christianity no matter how hard he tried. And he wrote this, he says, nothing has contributed 
to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. The early church was a place where the fruit was seen by people who didn't want to have anything to do with their religion. You know, in the early centuries, Christianity was often dismissed as a religion for women and slaves. We have writings from critics of Christianity dismissing Christianity, saying it was a religion for women and slaves. Do you know why it was a religion for women and slaves? Well, it's because one of the things that the Christians were fond of doing was going out to the trash heaps and gathering babies, mostly female babies, that had been turned out. The only people that wanted the female babies that were turned out, abortion was dangerous, but you could expose a child on the trash heap. Um, and if the child didn't get picked up by the Christians or eaten by wild dogs, it would be picked up by the people that ran the temple prostitution. And that's where the temple prostitutes came from. But Christianity was remarkable. Uh, yes, it was filled with a lot of women and a lot of slaves, but because they were going out and rescuing these babies. Like, Christianity was seen as something that made a difference in the world. Faith should make a difference. I like to think of this image. Stanley Harawas, is a professor at Duke, has been to Belmont, but before any of you guys have gotten here, talks about how the church is to be a counterculture colony of the coming kingdom. And, and, and believe me, if, if these things were at work more and more in us, it really would show to the watching world that there is another way to live, right? So how can we live this way? And, and here's what I want you to see. It's only when you understand how this fruit is seen first in God that it begins to work itself in you. What do I mean by that? You see, until you see Jesus as long-suffering, it's very hard for long-suffering to be produced in your own life. The, the thing I'm saying here is, the fruit are not just, you don't just look at this list and say, oh, I need to have more joy. I'm going to really work hard on joy. You know that story about Ben Franklin, how he kind of came up with the attributes that he wanted to basically improve his life. And so he made a list of these things and he started working, devoted really, you know, what, a day or a week to each of these until he got to pride. And then he realized he was proud of his accomplishments on all the other things. And, you know, the whole thing kind of came tumbling down. That's not... That's not what Christianity is about, right? Like, when, if, if you want to see more love, joy, peace in your life, where does it come from? It comes from understanding who God is and what he's done. Because the reason that we struggle to have love, joy, and peace in our life is because we're so anxious trying to make everything work rather than trusting God. And how do you trust God? Well, you see Christ and him crucified. And it does battle against your unbelief. It does battle against your suspicions that God doesn't care, that God doesn't have power, that God doesn't have good plans for his people. And so that's, you know, he talks here about this battle between the acts of the flesh 
and the fruit of the Spirit. But the way the fruit of the Spirit is developed, remember the role of the Holy Spirit, the focus of the Holy Spirit is to shine a spotlight on Christ. Jesus says this in John 14, that, that the Spirit, like the role of the Spirit is to testify to Jesus. And so the Spirit works in concert with what Jesus did on the cross. The Spirit says, look at this, remember who he is and what he's done. And you see this, there's a place you could look at this later, but Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5, Paul kind of talks about it. He says, since we have been justified with God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Not only so, down in verse 3, he says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is actually another list of fruit. Perseverance, hope, character, long-suffering. And how does it happen? It's the Spirit, the Spirit being the one through whom God's love is poured to our heart. In other words, the security that comes from the Spirit pouring God's love into our heart is what begins to produce character, even in the midst of suffering. And it's similar here in Galatians. Well, let's look at a couple of these um, in particular, and let me show you kind of how this works out. Let's look at patience, or I love the old King James word, long-suffering. It's a more literal translation of the Greek here. And, he, and here's the way Tim Keller does, d has defined it. I think it's a good, handy way to think of it. Long-suffering is the ability to take trouble from life and from others without being destroyed. It's a patient endurance under injuries inflicted by others. Be beware. Beware of those who would tell you that if you're a good Christian and you have enough faith, you won't have to suffer. That nonsense is not part of biblical teaching. But you will hear it. You'll hear it often on the TV, on the radio. Do you guys even watch TV anymore? I don't know. If you still watch TV, you might see it. You can hear it late night if you kind of flip around on the AM dial here in Nashville driving around. Yeah. You can hear some, some incredible preaching um, about this. Yeah. The sports radio station I, I used to listen to all the time, you know, I'd be, I used to happen a lot when I would go to, to RUF and I'd turn, turn my car back on and go home and, you know, the, the sports radio station, the AM sports radio station had turned into kind of preaching of all kinds. And um, there was one guy on there that always would advertise a trouble doll. And if you had troubles, you could send off and he'd send you a trouble doll and you wouldn't have troubles anymore because he'd blessed it, you know, and you just had to send him enough money. Like, you can hear that kind of stuff, right? But, but you know, the, the, the Christian teaching is that suffering, suffering is normal, right? And Paul doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is you'll have so much faith that you won't have suffering. No, he says you have this ability to take trouble without being destroyed, Another way to describe it is patience is a steadfastness, steadfastness in obedience to God despite pressure to deny him. It's a refusing to look for a quick out because Jesus never took a quick out. 
Now, there's a counterfeit to this. There, there's a counterfeit. The counterfeit is kind of what comes, what you can wump up with your own energy and your own strength. The counterfeit is enduring hardship through sheer willpower by shutting off emotionally. And you can do that. When suffering comes, rather than asking, what is God teaching me in the midst of that? You can just gut it out. Live in denial, right? And, and, and often the question is, what's the motive? It's always good to ask yourself when, you're, when you think you're doing well with suffering, ask why. Why? Why am I persevering? Why am I handling this? Is it because I don't want to be seen as weak? Or is it because I'm really coming to understand more about Jesus and his love, even in the midst of this? Like, it really is true that suffering opens a doorway for you to have a deep emotional connection with Jesus, because Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is one who suffered in every way, was tempted in every way. He was made like us, the book of Hebrews says, so that he could empathize with us. But he did more than empathize. He had the ability to end his suffering. When you're in the midst of suffering and you think, I would deny Jesus if I could make this stop. Now, now you actually are beginning to feel what it felt like for Jesus to be on the cross. Because Jesus said to his father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. But he said, and went on, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he endured, he endured what each of us would say, I would do anything to avoid. And he took it. And when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of suffering, there is a place to commune with him in that. There is a place to feel what his love felt like for him. What his love felt like for him was something that made him shrink back in horror. It, it was something that made him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what his love felt like for him. And here's what's so fascinating is often we feel like suffering is like the thing that seems to prove to us that God doesn't care. When actually, if you could understand, you actually have a doorway there to understand the caring of God in a way you never have before. And not only that, not just for you individually, but even in your community, because there are people suffering in your community that are tasting something of the faithfulness and the love of God that you need to know about. And I don't know exactly you know, when and where, but I do want to think even how can we be stewards even of the struggles that we have and not keep them to ourselves. Not just that we reach out and we share with others so that we can feel better, but because God is teaching us things that each of us need to know. Like, just like it takes 
a whole world of every race, tribe, tongue, and nation to image God, for us to understand what he's really like, I really do think that the, the suffering that a community endures, the different parts of it, each of us begins to taste a different aspect of God's faithfulness that we need to share with one another. It's why you need to share what's going on. Long-suffering, very different than just shutting off emotionally. Christian patience is not stoicism. It's not denying hurts. It's the ability to trust God in spite of it seeming like he's abandoning you. Because you know that if you are his child, he can't abandon you because he abandoned Jesus on the cross. And you use that solid truth to do battle against your fear and against your unbelief. And it enables perseverance. Now, there's a weed that threatens to choke out this fruit from growing in our lives. And it's this, it's impatience with God's timetable. Sometimes it's hard to be patient rather than trusting God. But again, how does, it, how does this fruit grow? Is by looking at the cross. The cross is the best proof that God cares. And that God didn't just care by staying at a distance and weeping. He entered in to suffering that he didn't deserve. So I don't know why what's going on is going on, but I do know, I do know that it's not because God has abandoned me. Does that make sense? In other words, what this, this teaching about the cross, it doesn't make all the suffering go away, absolutely not. But I do think it makes it bearable. John Frame, um, great Christian theologian, has a book on suffering and theology and all these sorts of deep questions. It's a good book. And, and he says, if you come to the Bible looking for answers to the problem of evil that will settle all your questions, you won't find that. But if you come to the Bible looking for the kinds of answers that will enable you to keep trusting, you do find that. And the ultimate answer is Jesus who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew in the very next moment he was going to raise him from the dead. But he also knew that he would die again, unless Jesus himself raises him from the dead. And when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he knows that everybody around is watching, and they're going to report back to the Jewish leadership, and he signs his own death warrant. And he knew exactly what he was doing. And he did it in a public, bold way. And it ultimately did lead to his death. Because the Jewish leadership, when they gather together, they say, what are we going to do? Everybody's running after him. We've got to act. We've got to do something. Right? The fruit of patience is produced by the settled peace and security that, knows, that comes from knowing that Jesus died rather than abandon us. Therefore, he's not going to abandon you now. Like being with you now in the midst of suffering is so much easier than staying on that cross. He already did the difficult work. 
He already did it. He's not going to abandon you now. How about lament? Where does lament fit in this? I'll just say this. Lament is an expression of faith. And the key is the direction of the cry. I wish I had more time to talk about it. But do not think that patience and crying out, how long, O Lord, are incompatible. They actually go together. Lament is an expression of faith because of the direction of the cry, not because everything's fine. It's long-suffering. Kindness. How about kindness? It's the definition. The meeting of felt needs with deeds, loving our neighbors in tangible ways. What's the artificial fruit? Kindness used to manipulate others. Seems like kindness. Good deeds that lead to self-congratulation and self-righteousness. Kindness that quickly turns to hatred and resentment when it's not noticed and praised. A good test. A good test. How do you feel when your good deeds don't seem to be appreciated? The kindness that's been talked about here is kindness because the love that God has for people that bear his image has begun to fill your heart. And you begin to love other people because they bear the image of the one who loved you and gave himself for you. That's why Paul says, you're not your own, you've been bought with a price, right? And Christians are those who can't get over that. There's a great story, you know, of this, of this old man, you know, I think it was Spurgeon tells the story about this old man who he's talking to the, to the guy and um, the guy just keeps saying, you know, me, a Christian? I, I just in all, all my years, I could never, never imagine me, a Christian. He still can't get over that. I, I remember being down in Peru um, on a mission trip and hearing this missionary. He was near retirement. And we asked him his testimony, and he gave his testimony about when he first became a Christian. He's your age. And he can't tell his testimony even in his 70s without weeping without just being overwhelmed again with the idea that me, a Christian, who could imagine it? When, when that fills your heart and softens your heart, you, you just want to tell people. You want them to know. Like Jack Miller, who started Surge, which I know some of you have done mission trips with Surge, or are gonna, Emily's going to do one this summer, um, he used to say evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Can't you do that? You could do that. Especially if you were really relishing the taste and if you were really relishing the fact that somebody was feeding you. Yeah? So kindness is always connected to knowing these people are made in the image of the God we love who did so much for us very different than loving people for what it gets you. I, I, I have my little, uh, should I use my, my example? I'll use my example. I always try to point this out to guys. You know, guys always are, are quick to, to, you know, help out a pretty girl. And here's what you need to know, guys. The pretty girls that you have your eyes on, watch how you treat the other girls. Because, listen, the pretty girls are always insecure about wondering if you love them because they're pretty. Because flattery is a snare, the Bible says. And the last thing you want 
is to have a guy love you because of how you look now, because you will always be insecure and wonder what will happen when I'm old and fat and gray. So kindness matters. Why are you kind? Why? And who are you kind to? What's the weed that chokes out the growth of this fruit? It's selfishness. But Jesus talks about this. Those who are forgiven much, love much. It's as simple as that. So if you feel like, man, I just don't feel like I'm very kind. I'm not very kind. (laughs) My wife will tell you, I'm just mean. Not very kind. And, and And the key, the answer is not, I just need to try to be more kind. The answer is like, I need to connect the dots. You know, that, like, that's usually a sign that I'm taking God's forgiveness for granted. That it's not melting my heart. Some of this is kind of counterintuitive. Like the, the counterfeit comes from just working on it directly and thinking you can just make this happen because you're convinced you need more of this in your life. But the real fruit comes from looking at God and the gospel in a way that changes your trust. Humility produces kindness, right? You know that parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, one of the the points of that is that you have to become like a Samaritan, which means like a social outcast in order to really love those who are broken. And isn't that who Jesus is? Jesus is the Samaritan, do you understand? Jesus is is the Samaritan who doesn't just risk his life bringing a wounded, beat-up Jew into a Jewish town. Do you understand like what a crazy thing that is? Jesus is the one who actually said, yes, I will pay everything that's owed because I will go into this place, not just of danger, but of death so that this one could be healed. That's what the cross is all about. And the cross undercuts pride that feeds the weeds. Can I do one more? Let me do one more. Let's talk about self-control. I've got notes here for some of the other ones, but self-control, remember I told you self-control was the one I thought I was so great at. But but I didn't have the other ones. It wasn't really self-control. Self-control is the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. It's the ability to choose the glory of God over the desires of the sinful nature. And it comes from an inner strength produced by the gospel. The artificial fruit is self-control that comes from willpower, pride, and more functional idols. Let me, let me explain this to you. John Owen, the great Puritan, said this. Mortification, that means killing sin from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end, to the goal of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. What happens a lot of times is we think we're growing when we're actually replacing one idol with another. Like maybe, maybe you're like, well, you know, I used to, you know, be kind of, you know, wild and doing all that kind of stuff, but now I kind of would like stability in my life. I'd like to be thought of well by a different group of people, and so I'm going to reform my life. That's not really the fruit of self-control. 
It's not. It's exchanging one idol for another. There's a guy, Thomas Chalmers, lived back in the uh, 1800s in Scotland. He was a huge uh, mentor for people like Robert Murray McShane, Horatius Bonar. We'd sing a lot of his hymns like, um, what was it? Not What My Hands Have Done was a Horatius Bonar hymn. Anyway, his mentor um, preached this sermon that Tim Keller just loves. And he, he shares this sermon with people all the time called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he talks about how often what we think is spiritual growth is really replacing one idol with another more respectable idol. Like, what, what's filling our heart? A lot of times it's, you know, a desire to improve our life in some sort of way rather than the love of God setting us free from needing to be right or needing to be you know, special in the eyes of other people. So there's this self-control. Philippians 3 actually talks about the connection between idolatry and self-control. Um, so you always have to, you know, beware of trying to deal with one idol like gluttony by another idol of vanity. Right? You'd be like, well, you know, I'm more healthy now. Look at me. You know, okay. You may not be more spiritually godly. Right? You may have just exchanged one idol for another. Is Christ and his love and his forgiveness bigger and more important to you? That's the key. And I, I think, you know, one of the greatest idols is this stoical self-control, certainly for me, um, by our own willpower. And we can kind of do that to deal with other lesser idols. And for the Greeks in Paul's day, this was the big one. See, if you, look, if you were a Greek in Paul's day, self-control was the supreme virtue. It was the supreme virtue. Now, Tim Keller had this fascinating thing uh, in a sermon one time I heard that I want to share with you. He says, most of our parents were Stoics. Not mine. Most of your parents were Stoics. They wanted us to be self-controlled. If you were raised in a Christian family, particularly, they wanted you to be self-controlled and moral right? But religious parents end up with stoic kids. Stoic parents tend to have Epicurean kids. Do you know what that is? Epicureans are the ones that say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Epicurean parents produce kids who are dying without direction, because without limits, they don't even know what it means to feel loved. It's really fascinating to think about this. Religion tends to produce stoical kids who think the goal is to like be safe and everything you know, be manageable and not be out of control in any sort of way. And then those kids tend to be like, ugh, that was just gross. You know, I've got to throw off the shackles, eat, drink, and be merry. And then the, those kids don't have any sense of what it really matters. And they often don't feel love because they were given no limits. It's fascinating. Stoicism is not Christianity. It's not Christianity. Was Jesus a Stoic? No. Jesus weeps all the time. A friend of mine challenged me once. When I was trying to deal with this kind of self-control thing, he's like, Kevin... You need to do a story of, or a study of the emotional life of Jesus. And again, not just so that you can feel bad about your lack of emotional life, 
but so that you can understand who he really is. Because here, I'll, I'll close with this. You know, Martin Luther said one time that before we sin in any particular way, before we break any of the Ten Commandments, we first break the first commandment. Do you know the first commandment? I am the Lord your God, have no other gods before me. And what Luther rightly understood was before you lust, before you want to murder somebody, you first imagine God to be less than he really is. You lust not just because you have hormones, you lust because you're not satisfied with what God has given you. I'm not talking about desire, I'm talking about lust, like I have to have this or I'll die. And what Luther understood is that seems reasonable, that seems like something you have to have because you've made God into an image. You've made him less than he really is. And therefore, when you think about the fruit, you need to understand that you've got to keep going. This is why the Bible regularly says, remember and rejoice in who God is, what he's like, and what he's done. And this is how you help your friends. Hey, I know you're struggling with this. I know you're struggling to believe this. Remember and rejoice. Don't just remember like, okay, yeah, I believe that. Good, I check it off. But rejoice. Actually, thank God for who he is and what he's done in this particular way that you tend to forget all the time. And you need people that know you and know the things you tend to forget all the time who can speak into those places of fear and unbelief. Dan Allender, a great Christian counselor, said that's the key to caring is real encouragement. Real encouragement is speaking gospel truth into these places of fear that are like the feeding ground, the root soil for your idols. Because your idols are always different ways of trying to to get things because you don't think God's going to be able to give them to you. So so again, I know a lot of this stuff is kind of counterintuitive. You don't look at this list and just be like, wow, I need to have more peace. No, you need to say, well, what is it about God and the gospel that would help me have more peace? What is it about God and the gospel that would help me be a person of integrity who's good and faithful? Why is it that I struggle to be a person of integrity? It's because I don't believe that God can take care of me. I feel like I've got to cut corners here and there to make sure that everything works out just like I think I need it to work, right? So you look at this list and you see lacks and you say, what is it about the gospel that's deficient in my understanding and in my worship? And look at how it ends, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. And the key to gratitude is to look to God and remember again what he's done and who he is. So that's the fruit. Let's pray together.